from Luminary Media, this is LGBTQ&A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'm here today with our producer, Zach Stafford, who you remember from the Robin Crawford interview. Hi, Zach. Hello. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for doing such a nice job with Robin, Thank by the way. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Of course, of <laughs> course. Welcome back. So today we're going to take a quick trip down memory lane to talk about the things from this year that were our favorite or just moments that have stuck with us for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Are you ready, Zach? I'm so ready. All right, perfect. So the first two clips we're going to hear are from Margaret Cho and Roxane Gay talking about love and sex. Let's hear it. I think that there is love definitely that can uh, exist and has existed before in my life. But in my life, it's been very fleeting and really compromised also by uh, the necessity of togetherness, marriage, uh, the, the kind of partnering that I'm trying to avoid. I find 40s work really well because by the time you're 40, 41, 42, you know what you like and you're more comfortable for most people. There are always exceptions, but you know what you like and you're more comfortable asking for it. You're less self-conscious. You're more willing to experiment and just try things that might not work out, but still, hey, why not? Let's give this a go. So the reason I like hearing from people talking about their relationships and sex are just because we have removed sex from the conversation in order mm. to, for like partially to achieve legal rights. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think it was actually Jennifer Finney Boylan on this podcast who said to me that when we reframed the marriage equality debate to be about love mm-hmm. and not like, shouldn't we get to have sex with who we want? That's mm-hmm. when it started succeeding. Yeah. So when we saw, you know, marriage change, when it shifted from sex to love, we also saw children come into play. And I think for a lot of folks, when you took the sex out of being gay, um, that made them more like straight people for people. And I think that's what's so interesting about what Jenny says, because it was all about the heteronormatizing of queerness, saying, you know, well, you know, they're together and they have that kid, but you don't have to think about how they have that kid. So you really kind of sanitize queer bodies to say that they then deserve rights, which is weird because the entire gay rights movement was based on the fact that we should be allowed to have sex. Right. But because everyone is so uncomfortable talking about sex, like that's more comfortable, right? Mm-hmm. To talk about like marriage. And I mean, I think about how like we rate movies at a higher adult rating if they have a gay sex scene yeah. versus a straight sex scene. And so that means that not only straight people are uncomfortable with gay sex, but gay people are uncomfortable with gay sex, right? <laughs> I'm not uncomfortable with it. Really? I just think it makes it, you know, more exclusive when you put a rated R behind it until, and I have to see it then. <laughs> well, I disagree because I was always terrified of seeing gay couples uh, show PDA. Really? Why is that? Because I grew up and that was not allowed. Hmm. And so for me, like, it's such a big thing to hold someone's hand and walk down the street. Yeah. And that made you nervous to see it happening in a a film. Yes. Less so in a film, but a little bit in the film. Yes. It makes me uncomfortable to see two guys or women or non-binary folks kissing if I'm sitting in a movie next to my parents. Mm, mm. You know, that being said, I had a really traumatic experience growing up seeing Closer, that movie with my parents. Remember that? (laughs) Yes. Because it's behind a paywall, we can quote the famous line, like, what did his cum taste like? Mm -hmm. You, but sweeter. And seeing (laughs) and hearing that next to my parents, I'm scarred for life. Really? Yeah. Have you ever acknowledged this with your parents? Oh, absolutely not. You haven't been like, hey, so what did dad's... Mm." No. (laughs) 
No. Well, also like my like dad would come home from work and like kiss my mom on the cheek. And I think that was the most affection I ever saw them Interesting. show. Huh. Yeah. So what does, I know I'm not supposed to be interviewing you about these things, but I, I have to know, you know, you just mentioned that seeing these couples, you know, being engaged in some form of sexuality on screen made you nervous. You know, you don't see your parents doing it very much. How do you think that was impacting you as a gay person now as an adult dating? Oh, it like made me more straight acting. Really? I was okay being gay if people could look at me and never know I was gay. That was early Jeff too, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm not like that anymore. Mm-hmm. But it was the, like, not pushing my gayness in someone else's face. Mm-hmm. And, if that, and that included, like, making out with somebody in yeah. front of somebody else. Yeah. Also, like, which is weird about PDA in general for anybody, no matter your sex. Do you want to become better at that? And when I mean better, I mean more comfortable in, per, in showing it, I guess, in public. Um, I don't know. I'm more comfortable with holding a man's hand in public, but mm-hmm. less so about making out. Um, and I think that that has less to do with um, sexuality and mm-hmm. more just about like um, like being a more conservative mm-hmm. in that area, actually. That's so interesting. And I find that really interesting because, you know, we just listened to these Margaret Cho and Roxanne Gay clips, and I think they are giving us a future possibility or a futurity of exactly the opposite, maybe, of what you're saying. Yeah. That they're saying, you know, Roxanne's like, as I get older, you get better at sex. You're going to care less because you know your body more and you're going to kind of like have this fuck it mentality. Um, and Margaret Cho is saying, you don't have to abide by these rules, which it sounds like your parents did of like, don't be too sexual in front of the kids, kind of be very proper. Um, but it sounds like you're kind of stuck in between yeah. those, those those spaces. And, and a big part of that too is that we didn't have growing up public gay people mm-hmm. in life. Yeah. And like even those we have now, like it's hard to think of some, but if you if I think really hard, it's like, oh, Neil Patrick Harris. And yeah. he is in like the most heteronormative family in America. Yes, because you always see the videos of him and his husband in their home in Harlem with the kids and they're not kissing. They're just like taking on a tour. Yeah. Or we see Ellen and Portia watching a football game. So there's kind of these like images that we're still getting fed are not very sexualized at all still. And that's why I think that there's some like sensationalizing with trans people in relationships too. Mm. Because we, you know, there's a big issue with like the sexualization of mm-hmm. trans people. Yeah. And we don't have a lot of examples, um, which actually leads me to Don Bacardi, oh. who I'm obsessed with. Christopher Isherwood's yes, boyfriend. His husband. Yes. They never got married. I just they called him the husband. Married. I, I understand why, but I just love calling him his husband. They were together for 33 That's years. That's why I love calling him his husband. My yeah. God. And they were in an open relationship back then. Um, they, I don't think they Bless had hearts. I know, right? <laughs> but also, like, I didn't know that was an option growing up. Totally an option. Right? <laughs> but guess, I don't know. I'm not, I can't even get one man, let alone many. <laughs> so I don't know. But I mean, like, it was 10 years ago. Had someone been like, hey, I want to be your boyfriend and I want to date other people. I'd say, like, that's not how boyfriends work. And I think now everybody in America knows that there are this option, this possibility. And that's a radical change in our like families. Yeah. So let's hear Don talk a little bit about his relationship with Christopher. It's such a luxury to have that man with I knew so well and slept with. We always slept together, Chris and I. Always, and not just in the same bed, but uh, usually entangled with each other. Really intimate. We always believed that was how uh, we managed the longevity of our relationship. And we often believed that we had communication all night long, that uh, our nights together were uh, pieces of our lives in the waking hours. Yes, we really uh, did run the gamut of possibilities in uh, knowing each other. Oh, I, I think of him every day. I don't even have to think of him. He's part of me. Uh, if I'm breathing, 
I'm uh, in effect thinking about it. So that was Don McCarty. That interview was really just special to me personally because we were recording it in his studio that Christopher bought him. Is that where they actually live too? Yeah. Amazing. It's this gorgeous house on like the side of the Santa Monica Mountains. And uh, the studio we were in was the old garage that Christopher added to to give Don this art studio Uh, for his portraits. That's love. A man that buys you things. (laughs) But like we're talking about his relationship with Christopher Ershwood and we're surrounded by gorgeous portraits of mm-hmm. Christopher that Don painted. Um, there's a bed in the corner and that is the bed that Christopher died in. He wanted to have the best view in the house. Wow. So it was really, really special. That's so special, so, so special. Yeah. And also, you know, goals. You know, if you need to be in an open relationship, if that's the path you're, you're going down, you know, there is a, a bright future there that involves a bed in a garage and a home on the side of a mountain. Also goals because Christopher died and Don released a book of his portraits. I want a book of portraits released. Wow, that's that's amazing. Wow, we're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about gender. Do you remember gender? Uh, it's gone, isn't it? It yeah, died. I think we're in like a post-gender world. Very post, post-post-gender world. I remember it though, just from Shakespeare, primarily. <laughs> um, I don't know if you know, but when I first started the podcast three years ago, it was such a challenge to find non-binary people really? for the podcast. Yeah. Um, we had Jacob Tobiah like fifth on. Mm-hmm. They've come back recently since to talk about their new memoir. But after that, I think it was like three, four months until we had somebody else. Um, and it was me having to purposely seek out non-binary identities to come on the show. Mm-hmm. And it was a challenge, something we had to do. But now, I mean, I think we have one every month. Yeah. And there's we, a lot of folks coming on. Everyone. Yeah. And also like, we're, I'm surprised by people like H. Allen Scott was on last week's episode mm-hmm. and I didn't realize that they came out as non-binary too, like a couple of weeks before that. Yeah. So um, it's just like a fascinating change in just like the three years mm-hmm. of the podcast. And why do you think you're seeing that happen in your own work here? I think it has to be awareness. Mm. I think like we said about polyamory and um, relationships, like knowing is an option. I think people now have a word to describe this feeling that they've always felt, but didn't know they could name because they didn't know it was possible. Mm, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally believe that. Because I think like, you know, gender to me feels like this um, diagnosis that you get as a child. You're like, you're told you're a boy, you're told you're a girl, here are the symptoms and here's how you do to manage it. You know, we as men are told you got to walk this way, got to do this thing, girls, same, same, same. And I think when you hear this word non-binary and you're allowed to imagine a world where that, you know, diagnosis is quote unquote cured maybe, that you're like, actually, you don't have to walk that way and you don't have to move to the world that way. I understand why people like H. Allen Scott, who I've known for many years, now has like the opportunity to better talk about their body um, because they finally have the language and that's amazing. And language is what is that lock for you to like get through that door that's been blocking you this whole time. Because we all know that like gender never feels good for uh, certain genders um, and it's a journey to get through. Yeah. And also like, I think that's why I want to play this clip for you from Cyrus Grace Dunham. Oh, I love Cyrus. Yeah, you interviewed them on AIM to DM. Yes, I did. I love talking to him because gender is complicated mm-hmm. and Cyrus doesn't shy away from that. Mm. I think that, you know, three years ago when I was talking about, we had to talk about being non-binary and really set um, PCPR focused mm-hmm. words because we're it's, it's new to people. Yeah. And so Cyrus, as we'll hear, is still figuring things out and he's doing it publicly. So let's hear that clip. I'm not one to undermine anybody's felt experience of who they are because it's, it's what people feel. My experience, and so the one I'm trying to write through is one that's a lot muddier. And I think in a lot of ways, it was easier for me in the cultural position I'm in with the friends I have, with the books I've read, with the work I do, 
to accept that I had an intellectual, cultural, that I wanted to reject the construction of binary gender, that was easier for me to accept than the ways in which I had always really hated my own body and wanted it to be different. I think a lot of what I was working through in the book was this feeling that like, if I was stronger, I wouldn't need to go through the process of medical intervention, that I would be able to intellectualize and will myself into being like, I'm not a man and I'm not a woman, and it doesn't matter what my body is. That's just amazing to me because I think it's it's really challenging, I think, to come out as non-binary and have everyone in your life change all of like their pronouns for you, yeah. right? Um, Cyrus uses he, him, and they, them. But to have people see you differently, to have people like change your name mm-hmm. or just address you differently, that takes work from everybody else. Yeah. And the way that like when we came out as gay, people didn't need to um, like have to like be worried about slipping up mm-hmm. language. Yeah. And for Cyrus to come out and also to say, but I have doubts. Mm-hmm. I think that's like just really honest. Like we kind of need that honesty. Yeah. And what I love about Cyrus's journey and their story is that I think trans folk and non-binary folks are, are fed this idea that, okay, you realize you're different. And then the path to accepting that difference is really linear or it has to be complete or it's its own binary of knowing and then dealing. And I think Cyrus presents us a case in which you never get over it. You keep revolving, you keep changing and it's always gonna be moving. And I think that's more accurate for gender. Gender isn't stagnant. Sex can be stagnant. You know, your chromosomes kind of say the same, but in terms of how you present to move about the world and how you want the world to see you, should be allowed to change and because the world's changing. And yeah. I think like that's why Cyrus is creating really special work for us to think through that. Yeah. And I love that they mentioned um, intellectual gender as well as like the gender in their body, mm-hmm. because we have explained to society in the world about the difference between sex and gender. Mm-hmm. And we say that gender is what's in your head. Yeah. It's the gender you know you are, but that actually removes it from your body mm-hmm. when it's about both. Yeah. And not just like this um, intellectual person who read a gender studies book. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when Judith Butler talks about like performing gender, she's saying that like it's how your body physically moves through a space and how you want it to prop up and push and touch. And that should be always a part of the conversation. It doesn't always need to be, you know, are you wearing a dress? Are you wearing a suit? Are you wearing shoes? Like these things are are part of it, but it's not all of it. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, we gotta think of well, I've been watching a show. I saw an episode, I've not been watching, but I've seen a few episodes of this show called Naked Attraction. Have you seen it? I've not. So in the US, it's on Pornhub.com. I don't know if you've heard, Um, but in the UK, it's on a major television network. It's a huge show and it's a dating show where one person has six people, I think, uh, behind this glass wall that slowly rises up and they're fully naked and they show different parts of their body. And there's all these interesting conversations about attraction in the body and then about like the performance of the body, what they like to do, and eventually you hear their voice. And what's amazing is that they're ripping away the traditional ways in which we think of gender, which is like clothing and how we like, you know, when you go on a date, you look at someone's clothing and you're like, okay, I know this is this about them. But have someone's naked body and have them talk about their gender, talk about their sex, talk about the stuff in That's really lovely ways. It was amazing. And I was watching the show the other night with friends and I was overwhelmed with anxiety because I was like, well, how do you really know who they are? Because they're not wearing clothing and they don't have these things. And then you're like, because at the end they go on a date and they go as them full selves and it's a very different experience. And it's this amazing meditation on like the body and gender and sex. What is that show called? Naked Attraction. Naked Attraction. Yes. Would you ever go on a show like that? Hail to the no. No, I would not. And I love, that's probably why it makes me anxious because I'm a very empathic um 
Pisces and I'm watching the show and I'm like, oh my God, if that's me, what would I do? And what's incredible is these people are so free and their bodies look so different. Like it's not a show in which these people have these Greek God bodies, they're themselves. And I think when people present themselves as themselves to a partner and you get past the shock of like, maybe their genitals aren't what you thought they're going to be or all these other things and you get to just get to know them, um, it becomes a much more human experience. And you see it all goes away really quickly. That's all societal. Oh, it's also like the anti-dating app show. Yeah. Because for dating apps, you're like, oh, he's under six foot three. I can't mm-hmm. date him. Yeah. When in real life, you'd be like, damn, he's so hot. He's 5'7". Yes. Like, look at that. And also it's like reverse grinder where like, I mean, I guess not reverse grinder. People send news really quickly, but it's like the news are there. We got that out of the way. You've seen everything. Now let's move on. And I think that's kind of amazing. Wow. In a body obsessed society. I have to watch. That's incredible. You know, I have one more clip from you and it's going to lighten the mood, I promise. Okay. Okay. So this is Ivy Botini. Ivy is 93 years old. She's legally blind and she worked with Betty Friedan in the women's movement. Oh my God, the Betty. The Betty, yes. Mm-hmm. So for people who don't know, Betty wrote The Feminine Mystique, which is largely credited for starting the second wave mm-hmm. of American feminism. Yeah. Amazing figure. And so when Betty found out that she was a lesbian, she kicked her out. Then she moved to LA. Her life story is crazy. And I want to play this specific clip for you because she talks about trying to be less butch, but also I think what is, I think, a a great queer tradition. She's okay. a crush on her gym teacher. Oh my God, I love this. <laughs> okay, so here's Ivy Bottini. I I hadn't come out, out, out. Um, I was struggling. Um, I, I was trying to figure out who I was and I was still... Um, living with my husband and my children. And so to, to just put icing on the cake so nobody would think that I was a lesbian or at least struggling with the question, I went out and I bought, this is crazy, I bought a hat, a little kind of, this kind of hat, it was blue with white polka dots, and I had I bought gloves to match, and I went to the meeting, also with my oldest daughter, who was like thirteen, fourteen, at the time, because I figured, you know, they're never going to think I'm struggling here if I have a child with me. Oh, from the time I was in kindergarten, I started by a major crush on our gym teacher when I was in kindergarten, Miss Rose. She could whistle through her teeth. Oh, my God. I knew I loved women all along growing up. That was clear to me. But I I didn't know that it could be a choice because... I didn't know there were really other lesbians that felt the same way I did. I mean, that's everything we've been talking about, right? Yeah. With like awareness. Yeah. Like you didn't actually know there's other women who loved other women. Mm-hmm. And that like that was like like the 50s, 60s-ish. That's a massive uh, change in such a small period of time. Mm-hmm. And you know, if we're talking about second wave feminism, I don't know if you're familiar with the term that she's kind of discussing that Betty Friedan, I think, not mark, but it came out around the time, but it's compulsory heterosexuality. Have you heard this term? No. So this comes out of the second wave feminism when she was alive. So she's a great example of this whole 
yeah, when it began. Um, and it's this idea that, you know, we as people, because you only see heterosexuality around you, no matter how you feel inside at this time, if there's no representation, you just compulsively live those lives and you do these things until it changes, until you see that representation. So she's a perfect example of that. Like if people, like when we talk about queerness, you know, you and I both have experiences where I think we had moments where you're like, I feel different. Things are different. I have, I wanted these urges. I don't know what to do. But we also grew up at a time where you saw flickers of representation, good and bad. You saw like the bad stuff and like, you know, SNL may have done a bad skit or so on and so forth. But we at least saw something, a guiding, there was a guiding light. She did not have that at all, barely. There's barely any of that. So there wasn't even a way where you thought that there was a lesbian or women lived together. Or when you saw them live together, they were roommates. So you just followed the guidelines of the world and you compulsively married a man and compulsively had a child and you compulsively did all these things until it stopped. And back then you needed man to have access to power. Exactly. So like how would two women get ahead in the world? Exactly. They Could they have opened a credit card even? No. You know? No, I mean, we literally have laws and legislation for decades and centuries really that didn't allow women to be active agents in the world. Um, so, and you know, for a while you've seen a lot of like, you know, 18th century French writing, um, this idea of like homosocial spaces coming out where women are living, like hanging out in these salons because you couldn't have mixed genders in public space. So like queerness did thrive there, but once that all sort of breaking down and we have like modern day America where people walk around the world and have freedom and maybe getting their first jobs and having families. And they're like, wait, I feel this way, but it feels weird and I don't know what I'm doing. And then, oh, I met a lesbian, a butch lesbian. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is me. I like this. Yeah. And the compulsiveness is gone. I, I love it so much. Same thing with gender, same thing with everything we've been saying. Um, if people are listening or also wondering, oh my God, Ivy Bottini, I haven't heard that episode yet. It's coming out in like two to three weeks, I promise. So that was just <laughs> a preview. All right, that's it for today. Zach, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's been so lovely sitting here. I agree. Where can the good people find you when you're not um, moonlighting on LGBTQ&A? I'm on the twitter.com. I love Twitter. At I'm Zach on there. Safford. Yeah, I know. I see you sometimes. <laughs> I was tweeting ridiculous things. Thank you. Um, so at Zach Safford. At Zach off. Safford. That's Great. where you can find me. Amazing. And I'm at Jeff Masters one Let us know who you guys want to hear from next year, okay? So we will see you next week in the new year. We'll be here with Chani Nicholas, your favorite astrologer. Do not not miss that. We're brought to you by Luminary Media, Nian Hum Media, and The Advocate. The Advocate magazine is the world's leading LGBTQ news source. Come check out our website at advocate.com. LGBTQ is produced by Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Stafford, John Asante, Jordan Gosbury, and myself with sound engineering by Mark Bush. We'll see you next week. 